everyone, Terry Welbrock here with the Healing Place Podcast. I have so much going on that's exciting, I can hardly stand it all. Yes, so I'm working on audiobook number five, which is actually a business book about uh, creating your own, starting up your own business, and a really awesome book. So I cannot wait to put that out into the universe. For any of you who have thought about starting your own business, definitely want to check out um, because it it talks about whether it's sole proprietorship all the way up to a corporation kind of business. So um, in LLCs, which I once had an LLC um, at one point until I sold, sold that part of my company off uh, to the co-owner. Um, and I've learned about LLPs and uh, S-Corps and C-Corps just from narrating this book. So it's been wonderful. So you have to check that out. The other four audiobooks are in the healing arena. So be sure to go check those out. If you go to Audible and type in Terry Welbrock, T-E-R-I-W-E-L-L-B-R-O-C-K, you can find those four books there. You can use your Audible credits or you can just purchase outright. I, I still have the interview with one of the authors of the two book series, the Best Bedtime Stories for Stressed Out Adult series. I did book one and book two. I narrated those. Um, I'll be editing that interview over the next few days, and that should be coming out as a special episode, so be sure to tune in, listen for that one. Um, I'm also st starting to partnership up or have partnershiped up. I just haven't done an announcement yet. So I guess this is the official like first announcement with a company that I came across a product of theirs that has really, 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 really helped me along my healing journey, not just with my skin issues from the mold toxicity um, and helping that clear up, but with some of the lingering remnants of, of trauma and my, my complex post-traumatic stress disorder, the CPTSD. Um, yeah, so that's kind of a little bonus. I just did a Facebook Live yesterday on that, talking about oxidative stress and what that is. So if you want to pop on over to Facebook and go to the Healing Place podcast, which that page is now up to 8,500 followers. So if you are not yet a part of that and you're a Facebook fan, please go over and hit like or follow. And uh, I try to post a number of inspirational memes or something funny or uh, something helpful for your healing journey um, every day. So, yes, you can find that there. Um, personally, my skin is uh, continues to improve and heal again with the added bonus of, the, of this product that I am going to be sharing with all of you. Well, today's interview, oh my gosh, I just laughed and loved it and just what a beautiful light. I'm very excited to share this episode with you, um, an amazing story of triumph. Um, yes, just uh, be prepared to, to be um, amazed at, at this incredible story of triumph. All right, now for the show. Welcome, everybody, to the Healing Place podcast. I am your host, Terry Welbrock, and smiling big again. Uh, so very happy to have with me Gerilyn S. Ritter, and she is author, trauma survivor, mother, and corporate executive. So welcome. Thank you, Terry. I'm really thrilled to be here. 
Well, I am just, again, you know, I'm beaming because I talked to you for just five <laughs> minutes before hitting record and love your energy, love your spirit, and um, just so very thrilled to have you here to share your story of triumph. So yeah, can we, I guess, just kind of dive into absolutely um, your story. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, my, the thing about my story that it, it still strikes even me was how ordinary a day it was. It, it was just a normal Tuesday work day. Like I had had a thousand times. I woke up, I, you know, I had an early trip that day. I uh, worked for a major company. I was often in Washington, DC. I'd gotten up early that morning, gotten on the train, gone down to Washington, did my meetings, was back home that night. Well, was planning to be back home that night. Um, and as the train pulled out of Philadelphia a little after nine o'clock in the evening, I sat down, it had been a long day. I, I sat on the train, I texted my husband, leaving Philly, home soon. He responded right away, you know, hey, look forward to seeing you tonight. Stevie at the time, our eight-year-old, uh, had a great baseball game. He got a legitimate base hit. <laughs> and my little, I have three sons, Stevie's my youngest. And let's just say a base hit was a big deal for Stevie. <laughs> so, you know, I texted back, that's great you know, just so ordinary. And, you know, see you soon. Okay. Um, and I put down my phone, I stood up in the in the aisle of the train, and I wanted to get something out of my briefcase. I was getting my iPad out. I just wanted to read to pass the time till the next stop when I would get off. And I noticed the train was going, seemed to be going fast. I, I'd taken this train a hundred times, like I said. And for a moment, I, I was kind of glad. I thought, great, you know, I just want to get home. It's 9.15 at night. I'm tired. And then we were rocking so much, I had to hold on to the luggage rack above my head, and I started getting annoyed. Like, I I, I kept losing my balance, and I, I couldn't get what I wanted out of my briefcase. And then the train went around a curve, and you feel that lean. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, it feels like we're tipping. And I, I remember very clearly thinking, no, train, you know, that's impossible. We can't be tipping. Trains don't tip. And I remember a flash of no, a, a, a realization. We are tipping over. And the very last thing I remember is screaming. And I would learn later that the train was going 106 miles an hour into a curve designed for a maximum of 50. Wow. The train derailed and eight people lost their lives that night. Hundreds were injured and I was um, severely injured and very nearly, in fact, the surgeons told my family uh, I was not going to survive. Wow. wow. Well, I know I got onto your website. Thank you for sharing onto your website and followed some links and was just uh, reading things and went to the page that you dedicate to, to the eight who lost their lives. And um, yeah, it just took a moment to look at their faces and, and send up a little prayer for, for each of them because wow, so powerful. And, and you're right. Just how it can shift in a second. In a second, going from yeah. the completely ordinary to the, life-changing, world-changing, 
in a in a heartbeat literally in a heartbeat and I do still take the train I have coached myself to be able to to do that um, but I when we go by that spot that curve on the tracks I feel it in my bones even if I'm reading or doing something else or trying to distract myself so that I'm not scared I feel it and I close my eyes and I, I just bow my head and, and try to honor those eight people who, you know, it, it, there's just no explanation. Many of them were sitting right around me in the first car. Uh, the first car of the train was the business class car. It was the only business class car. So there are good records of who was sitting there and that sort of thing. I remember there were not that, it was about 12 people, 12 of us on that car. And some of those faces were sitting right around me. And so by the grace of God, uh, I'm here talking to you, but right. I um, am always conscious of those that did not make it home that night. Yeah. Well, you say you felt it in your bones and I know the name of your memoir is, is it bone by bone? It is, it is. And mm -hmm. I was very severely injured. So the the title has kind of a double meaning. It's it's an allusion to, of course, the, the very gradual process of healing bone by bone. I would have a dozen surgeries. I was on total disability my, from my job for about two and a half years. Uh, I was on a ventilator, immobilized in ICU for quite a long time. And you know, healing is, is not a straight line. You know, I, I learned painfully that, you know, you don't, uh, you know, get over one bump and then it's just a nice straight line improvement every day. <laughs> don't I wish, you know, it's, right. it's a, it's a, it's a more crooked journey than that with ups and downs. Um, but the trauma can also be very alienating. And as much as I had a loving family around me, I had great medical care, I had friends and colleagues that wanted to do nothing more than support us. Nobody can understand. Nobody can really understand. And, you know, as the pain from my injuries wore on, as the reality that I was not going back to work anytime soon, that I couldn't even get out of bed, get to the bathroom by myself, much less drive or get up to the second floor of my house where my bedroom was as the the reality of of my situation sank in um and and the pain wore on that that feeling of disconnectedness was really tough and there's an amazing poem by emily dickinson called there is a pain so utter it swallows substance up and it, it talks about that disconnectedness, the, the dissociation that they say is almost a hallmark of trauma. And she talks about how the memory kind of has this protective effect and, and disconnects you from some of the traumatic events of the past, but also from some of those around you. And the last line of the poem is, you know, and, and there, then you go safely where with an open eye would drop you bone by bone. And so, that's why I called my top book. Uh, that's why I use that phrase in, in the title of my book. Oh, gosh, I had goosebumps went down <laughs> my legs. I, I oh, my gosh. So when I went through EMDR therapy for over four years, um, for my trauma in my childhood and in younger years, um, I had been through a horrific, two horrific bank robberies, three months apart by the same perpetrators. 
And during the second one, I was um, trapped between between two gunmen. Um, and so I had to choose between running towards death or death because the highway was in front of me with a bunch of, you know, fences and trees and I couldn't get go that way and a house behind me. So it was like, which direction do I run to get away from this? So when I would go back into EMDR, right. I, it was always as if, uh, because it, we, the therapist takes you back into the memories, mm-hmm. it was as if I was watching a movie. And so what you're talking about was that dissociation. I would, it was as if I was watching it happen to someone else. And I'll never, ever forget maybe about year three of this process, um, just sobbing. And my therapist said, you know, what's happening? And I said, for the first time, I turned my head when we returned to that that particular moment in time, and I was seeing it through my own eyes. And so I, I was back in my body, like I was able to be comfortable in this body. I no longer had to dissociate. So that's what I was, when you were talking about it, I was, yeah, you're right. How exactly. powerful trauma and our brains and our bodies can be in protecting us from, from that trauma. And I... I remember in some of those early days realizing that I could deliberately leave my body, you know, and, and I would go there when I couldn't take it. Uh, sometimes at night when I was in ICU, I'm, I'm on a ventilator, you're immobilized. So it was blink once for yes, blink twice for no, you know, so you, you can't speak, you can't move. I was in overwhelming pain. You know, my, my family had all left. They, the nurses would come in to wash my wounds, my surgical incisions. They would need to roll me onto either side because I had injuries on my front and my back. And I remember thinking, I, you know, <laughs> when you when you can't speak you can't express yourself you can't move and i literally would just close my eyes the one thing i felt like i could do was pray and i remember thinking that is the only thing i can do is close my eyes and silently pray and i would try to will myself to be anywhere else you know i i really would try to just disconnect with where i was and i could to some extent i i I, I could, that sounds so strange, but <laughs> I needed to go to that safer place. And it's so strange, actually, for well over a year after the accident, and even to this day, after I have a medical procedure, I would lay in bed, you know, I was back home, and I'd be like a tipped over zombie. I, my hands would be reaching for the ceiling. It would freak my husband out. Sometimes in the middle of the night, he'd look over, you know, I'm laying flat on my back with my arms reached up toward the ceiling. Sometimes I'd be moaning, sometimes not. Sometimes in the middle of the day, I'm perfectly awake. And I would just have my hands up and he'd say, what are you doing? I say, I, I don't, I can't explain it. That it just feels like a comfortable position, which it's totally not after an hour. Like (laughs) I would drop my phone. My arms would be so tired. And I, I knew intellectually I could put my arms down, but I didn't want to. And it didn't make sense to me for months. All I knew, I was thinking maybe, well, in the hospital when I was immobilized, I could move my arms. So maybe that was, you know, maybe that's why. But I realized as I was telling the story of the crash to someone, and I almost, without thinking, had described how I was holding onto the luggage rack above my head when we crashed, you know, to, to keep myself steady. And my psychiatrist had said to me, he said, you know, 
that was your last moment of safety. And it may well, I've, I've had an emergency responder tell me, it may well have been what saved me because many of the people in the first car did not survive. The fact that I was standing in the middle away from the windows and, and was braced with my hands over my head holding onto the luggage rack, we'll never know, you know, and, and to this day, I don't know who found me in the rubble. I do know that I was found quickly and that person most certainly saved my life. But it's, it's amazing to me. I had a big surgery just last year, seven years after the accident, and I woke up from anesthesia with my arms reaching toward the ceiling. And it's, you know, it's a harmful gesture as they go, but it is amazing how those memories are just stored in our bones. They're, they're there. (laughs) And I may not think about them anymore nearly as much, but they're a part of us. Yes. Wow. That is just incredibly powerful. And I'm like intuitively, I, I'm saying, oh gosh, yes, that's exactly what was going it? on. Yes. <laughs> wow. We're the same crazy, Terry. <laughs> right. Oh, I'm, I'm right there with you. That's amazing. You know, and yeah. it's and I'm, I am going to emphasize that. So I would have after the bank robberies and I was experiencing horrific panic attacks, particularly on bridges, because to me, there was no escape. It was like being trapped Uh, in an open space. Right. Right. So the only escape was this way or this way, same as that particular Mm -hmm. moment. Like the only escape was this way or this way. I couldn't go this way or this way. Right. And so I found myself when driving that I would start to like veer to the right, veer to the right, veer to the right. And I was like, why am I always like veering? I don't want to drive off the bridge. I don't want to kill myself. Like what is happening? Well, during the first bank robbery, a gun was held to my left temple by the gentleman that ended up pulling the trigger and murdering a coworker. And so to me, you know, having that, I was always trying to like get to get away from the scary to get yeah. away from the station. And so once we realized that we, you know, again, like you were able to do some coaching and training work, brain rewiring stuff and uh, right. yeah, help, help that recenter itself. But it is, it was my brain saying, get away from it, get away right. from it, go right. right. <laughs> Right. Go that way. Well, and and intellectually you you know it would be much safer to drive <laughs> in the right. middle of the lane. <laughs> right. But you know, our, our our nervous system is just dialed up and you know, it, 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 your brain wants to protect you with what it knows for some reason and that, that rational voice can get drowned out. <laughs> yes. Oh, for sure, for sure. Wow, powerful. So now you you've put this book out, which uh-huh. is um your story of, of hope and triumph. And now do you, do you do speaking engagements and travel and and talk to people about it? I, I do, you know, and I, I didn't start out to write a book. I, you know, in the beginning, my husband would search for me all night long. You know, my son, my three sons were calling hospitals. We're looking for our mom. She was on the train. So, so the whole family, was really traumatized that night. And, and I was a Jane Doe. Nobody knew who I was. If you think about it, if a guy gets thrown out of the train, he probably has a wallet in his pocket. A woman probably has her bag, you know, uh, her wallet's probably in her bag, under the seat, on the seat, somewhere else. And so it it does haunt me that they were pretty sure I was dying. They they I was 
life flighted in a helicopter to a fantastic level one trauma center. They got me into surgery right away. They, you know, were able to keep me alive until my husband did find me the next morning. Um, but it was touch and go for quite a while. And, but in, in the beginning, when it became clear that I probably would live and that I didn't have a major brain injury, I, my, my chest was crushed. Most of my abdominal organs were either destroyed or perforated in the wrong place. My pelvis was broken in half. I had big traumatic, uh, penetrating wounds, um, broken my neck and my lower back, but, but fortunately in just such a way that they didn't think they thought my spinal cord was going to be okay. Um, but we were just so grateful. We were just so grateful. You know, I knew that other people had not survived and I may have been immobilized on a ventilator and blinking once for yes and twice for no, but I was, I was there. You know, and as the weeks passed, some of the things they were worried about, overwhelming infection, that kind of thing did not come to pass. And it became more and more, we weren't sure about the quality of life, but that I would live. And and then I, I, I go so unrealistic. You know, you're determined to be positive. You're grateful you lived. I had always been kind of a a planner or a hard charging person. I, I had a, you know, career that I was very proud of. And I just thought, well, you know, you break your arm heals in about six weeks. I'm calling my boss saying, I'll be, I'll be back by the end of the summer. And I remember my mom telling me she would leave the room when she would hear me say that kind of thing because everybody knew that it wasn't true, but, but nobody wanted to dash my hopes. And you know, summer came and went, one more surgery, one more surgery, call my boss again. Oh, need, need, need a little more time, another couple months, another couple months. And I eventually got very depressed because I was missing all of these unrealistic milestones I'd set out for myself. I felt like I was, I was failing recovery. Maybe I wasn't trying hard enough. Maybe I was wallowing, you know, a lot of sort of self-blame for, for why am I so unhappy? I lived, I don't deserve to be unhappy. I, I, I should be happy. I'm the lucky one, but it's, it's hard to be grateful for pain for that long. And I started just taking notes because so many people were doing such incredibly kind things for me and my family, or my boys would say something when they were eight, 12 and 15 at the time of the accident and they would say something I thought oh I just want to remember that so I started I started you know taking notes and it wasn't until a full year after the accident I I said I didn't set out to write a book I, I usually don't keep a diary or a journal I just haven't been that person and I'd had a really tough reconstructive surgery I'd almost died again. I'd coded after the accident. They'd had a hard time resuscitating me back in ICU for a week and a half. And I, I was in my wheelchair and I went in to, to visit work, you know, after I got out of the hospital, just to say hi to folks, just to say, hey, I'm still here. Don't forget about me. <laughs> and I, I remember going into the CEO's office and just saying hello. And he was very kind. He'd always been a wonderful mentor to me. And I was telling him about this latest ordeal. And he said, Geraldine, you know you have to write a book. And I said, nah, Ken, I don't want it to be like, 
look how strong I am. I survived, you know, self kind of glorifying. I said, I didn't do anything to deserve to survive that, that those other eight people didn't do or wouldn't have done, you know? And he said, no, 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 no. You're thinking about it all wrong. He said, you have a story to tell and it can help people. And he said, you, you, you have a witness. And he, he quoted scripture on me, which I never expected coming from the CEO of a Fortune 50 company. But he said, the Bible says, don't hide your light under a bushel. Let it shine so that all can see the glory of God. And he, he, he said, you can help people. And it was like a light switch went on. It was like, put the story out there. And if nobody buys the book, nobody needs it great. I'm glad nobody needs it, right? <laughs> I'm glad nobody else is kind of going through that sort of experience. And, but if it helps one person, if one person draws hope or something in there makes them smile or laugh, or they try something in their own recovery from whatever's troubling their life that they might not have otherwise have tried, then some little piece of good came out of this accident that otherwise it's just a black hole in my life and, and a source of so much pain. And that helps me put it in perspective. So it's a very long answer to your question, but that, that is why I wrote the book. It's why I, I pledged from the beginning, I wouldn't make a dime off of it. I, I donate everything that comes in to the American Trauma Society or to the, they have a program within the American Trauma Society. It's, the, it's a peer support network for trauma survivors, the Trauma Survivor Network. So I donate, you know, any, any proceeds that come in from the book, but I, um, I'm, I'm glad that it's out there. And when I do have the opportunity to speak with medical professionals about the patient perspective on trauma or professional groups about restarting your career after years out of the workforce. To me, it's, it's one thing positive that I can do with this experience. So I enjoy appearing on fantastic shows like yours and just trying to connect with listeners because you know, everybody has something. Maybe not everybody had a train crash at 100 miles an hour or a bank robbery, but we've all None of us walk through life unscathed, you know, right. and, and I really do believe there's power in our stories. Oh, amen. And I love your energy and just, I'm sitting here and I feel like I'm kind of melting, just listening to your voice <laughs> and you have this beautiful way of presenting and um, there's just a gratitude uh, uh, that, that radiates from you. And, and I know that that's been part of, and I think when you, when you were, you were writing down your little notes, it really was becoming like a gratitude journal and in the focus on those things, those gifts that were coming. Well, like my sister and I call it the, the gifts within the chaos. And so being able to find, find those little gifts. Um, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I remember clearly it was months into my recovery. I was at a particularly low point, I was trying to wean off of all the very heavy pain medication, not all of them, but at least some of the fentanyl and the heaviest pain medications that I'd been on for months. And, you know, so on top of the pain of breathing with a shattered rib cage and, and all of these pelvic injuries that made it so difficult to move and to walk, I was dealing with the, the symptoms of, of opioid 
you know, weaning off the opioids. And I'm, I'm fortunate I don't seem to have the brain chemistry or the genetic makeup that made me have the addiction cravings. But your body becomes very physically dependent. And so the chills, the nausea, the dizziness, you know, it was insult on injury. And I, I, I was really feeling very low. And I'm sitting in bed in my bathrobe, haven't moved. And it's three in the afternoon. And my three, you know, three rowdy sons, by that point, they're nine and 13 and 15. And they, they, you know, come running in the door at, at three in the afternoon. And again, it was one of those kind of lightning bolt moments. And I thought, you know what, I'm here. Like I, I'd always worked, you know, they're growing up and I'd be at every baseball game after work, you know, in my suit, and my heels walking across the field, I was there, but I wasn't there when they would come home from school at three, you know, I'm, I'm home by dinner. And I thought, wow, you know, it's, it's been nine months and who knows how much longer to, I, I'm there on the first floor, can't go anywhere else. <laughs> you know, I'm right there when they come home from school. And I thought, don't waste this, you know, and it, and you realize those little silver linings. It's not, not how I would choose to be at home and spend this time with them. But, you know, I started resolving that every day by three, maybe I was showered, I'd try to be dressed, but I'd be out of bed. I didn't want them coming home every day and mom is still in bed. And I really credit them with helping me you know, keep myself accountable, help me me pull out of the depression and, 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 and be up when they got home from school, even if we all piled right back in bed and watched a movie in the afternoon. How awesome is that on a Wednesday afternoon? I'd never gotten to do that before. So, you know, the, the, the power of reframing, I really, you know, there's an, you have to be intentional about it. It doesn't just happen. But I, I really found ways to try to reframe and try to make myself see the benefits. It, you know, there's no other way to say it. The, 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 the sparkles of good in the situation because they were there. They were there. Yes. Beautiful. Oh my gosh. I love it. And you're, you're speaking to my heart. And so, yeah, and it's true. I read somewhere, I can't remember where I read it, but something about your infectious laugh. And it's so true. <laughs> you have the best. My sister has a great laugh. You, you're, I'm ranking you up there with my sister. It's a great laugh. <laughs> my sons call it a cackle. I have to say, I don't think they appreciate it as much. We'll be out to dinner and they'll be like, mom, mom. <laughs> People are looking. When I'm in a restaurant and, you know, on the other side of the restaurant, someone just throws their head back and sets it free. I start laughing at my table because I'm like, I love hearing a great laugh from across the restaurant. Exactly. Exactly. Oh my gosh. Well, I could sit and talk to you for, for hours, but I wanted to give you an opportunity to certainly talk about anything that, that maybe you feel moved to talk about. Oh, goodness. I, um, you know, one of, I'm often asked, what I take away from this experience? And, and there's no one thing, you know, excuse me, trauma does change you. It, it, it's, you don't move on, right? You move forward. Uh, You know, people talk about getting your life back. I, I, you don't go back when it's, when it's, has such a profound effect on you and your family. But, um, you know, for me, 
The toughest thing was always dealing with the uncertainty, dealing with not knowing. Doctors didn't really know how well I would recover, whether my pain would eventually fade and, and I'd be able to manage it. They still don't know, you know, will I need more surgeries down the line? Every year the answer seems to be yes. <laughs> you know, for, for something different. It's, it's kind of a new surprise. And the diagnosis is sort of like, well, you're you, <laughs> but, um, but it's, but it is okay. It is okay. And the balance between being optimistic and being grateful, but holding yourself to that cold, hard realism, that was one of the toughest things for me. And to this day, getting that balance right, being optimistic, keeping a good perspective, seeing the positive, it's huge. But as I learned early on, you know, being unrealistic, it just sets yourself up for failure. There's a, there's a great story I read in one of my favorite business books, and you may know it. Um, it's told by, by Admiral Jim Stockdale. He, he was a prisoner of war in Hanoi in Vietnam. And he was interviewed after that harrowing experience as a prisoner of war for years. And he was asked, you know, how did you make it through? And he said, I never doubted. I never doubted <clears throat> that I was going to make it out. And this was going to be the defining moment of my life. And they said, well, who, who, who didn't survive? Who just mentally, emotionally couldn't, you know, cracked? And he said, oh, that's easy. The optimists and it's not what you expect him to say he said they're the ones that said we'll be out by Christmas and Christmas would come and go we'll be out by Easter and Easter would come and go we'll be out by the summer he said and they died of a broken heart he said I never lost faith that I would get out but I also had to accept it wasn't going to be on my time I couldn't do anything about the timing and it was going to be a lot longer than I than than any of us thought we could manage. And that, that balance, that tug of war between acceptance, you know, and the optimism that things will get better is tough. And it, it's different for everyone. I think whether it's a rupture of a relationship or it's a medical crisis, there's, there is that balance that for me, was one of the most difficult, but I think one of the most profound learnings coming out of the experience. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because it is my my nickname for the longest time was glitter shitter because <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love that. <laughs> I just like the the epitome of optimist and you know positivity right. and like how looking at life through rose-colored glasses, like well, right. we'll, we'll get through this. But I also realized that through it all, I was also uh, having this undercurrent of, of real, being a realist of, um, yeah. well, look, <laughs> you've been through this trauma stuff before and you, this is what, this is the journey and um, hang on for the ride. You got to get yourself through this. Um, right. So yeah, you're right. It is a balance of, of facing the reality of, of not dissociating and trying to live yeah. from that place of dissociation. Right. Um, but being in the reality of it, but also say, you know, having the faith in the positivity and the, um, all of that intertwined with it. So, yeah, that's great. Thank you for that story. It's great. And, and the last thing I'll say is, 
you know, people have heard of, of post-traumatic stress, but not that many people have heard of post-traumatic growth, but it's real. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a, there, there are papers in medical journals about that phenomenon, you know, just like they've heard of survivor's guilt, but not necessarily survivor's pride. And that too is a really real phenomenon. And I take no pride in having survived the accident. Well, you know, I'll never know why. That was a gift. That was an undeserved gift that I received. But I do take pride in getting through the next day and the next day and the next day because survival is hard. And I've learned not to feel guilty about that pride um, because it's, it's hard earned. (laughs) It's really hard earned. And it was difficult to get here. And, and, you know, there's um, a creative opportunity in survival, things you never thought you would do, things you never thought would work. You know, you get pushed far enough, you're willing to try. (laughs) I, I had always dismissed meditation as a bunch of mumbo jumbo and, uh, you know, yoga was for people that didn't actually want to sweat when they exercised, you know, and breathing exercise. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you a story. I, when I was pregnant with my first son, I refused to go, you know, I told my husband, I am not going to those Lamaze breathing classes. I told him, you know what? I've been breathing for 30 years. I think I'm good at it. I'm not going. (laughs) I don't have time for that kind of thing. Right. You know, but, but as the, the pain wore on, as I was weaning off the opioids, as I was so incredibly miserable, you start thinking, well, I've tried everything else. You know, I have every doctor, every specialist, every drug, you know, Western medicine has to offer and you open yourself up to trying new things. And I, I still find breathing exercises very boring, but I have to admit they help. (laughs) (laughs) They gave me back some sense of control over my body and, and, you know, some ways that I could do without arguing with a pharmacist to to help manage my pain. And very gentle yoga turns out actually really is helpful. Who knew? (laughs) Right, right. So it's, it's, you know, there are opportunities in in these dark times um, and, and things we carry with us as we go forward. Yes. Oh, I love it so much. And again, I radiate like soul sister moments because <laughs> Absolutely. I so talk about my, remember my therapist talking to me about doing four square breathing and I was like, that's not going to help. What? <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and so, you know, trying to learn these breathing techniques throughout therapy. So yes. <laughs> it's, it's true. It's oh, true. I thought, God. okay, put your cynicism on hold. You know, you ain't yeah. got a better idea here. <laughs> Right, right. Well, and I love I love that you opened yourself up to it because I've talked about it so often on the show about building our big, huge coping skills toolboxes. And yeah, yeah. So I start as I stepped onto the healing journey, like something would come across my radar, Ho'oponopono Hawaiian healing. And I'd be uh-huh. like, ooh, let's let's see what that's all about. Yeah, <laughs> right? let's give it a whirl. And just found that I really, really love that. And it really resonated with me. So yes, audience, be open to things that come across your radar and say, you know, that's right. I wonder if give this it is a the try. Thing. Give yeah. it a try. You got nothing to lose. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Unless your healing tool is cliff diving or something. Oh, right. right. <laughs> Veering right off the bridge. Exactly. <laughs> You know, within reason. No, 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 exactly. (laughs) 
Oh my anyway, gosh! So how... well, I think we're we're ending on a great note. The laughter, I know. Laughter I know. is actually you know? <laughs> always good to end with laughter. Exactly. So, how exactly. do folks connect with you? Where do they find your book? So uh, you can find it on, you know, major book sites, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, but uh, you can also, I, I do have an author's website, GeraldineRitter.com. Uh, you can read more um, about my journey. I try to post resources, other books that helped me on my journey. So especially if you're a reader, please check it out. Um, and there's a way to connect with me there. Uh, I do a fair amount of podcasts. And if you'd like to know where I'll be speaking, um, I do try to post that on my website. I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn, uh, although more from a professional perspective than my personal journey. But, um, you know, we can't separate those pieces of who we are. So right. please, I'd love to hear from folks. Awesome. All right. Well, it's just been such a joy. Thank you for, yes, blessing me, my audience with, oh. uh, with your story and your beautiful light. Well, thank you for what you do. And and thank you to your audience. So we, we started this by saying we, we believe there's power in sharing our stories. And I just love that you help folks do that. So awesome. all the best, all the best. Awesome. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, everyone, thanks for joining us today on the Healing Place podcast. And remember, until next time, be gentle with yourself. Thanks. Bye-bye. Hey, everybody. Terry Welbrock again. Just wanted to thank you for listening to the episode today and remind you to visit my website as well, terrywellbrock.com. You can sign up for my monthly Hope for Healing newsletter, which is also jam-packed with information and strategies and blog pieces and guest blog pieces and links to shows. Thanks for, again, being here and being a part of this healing space. I very much appreciate you. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you.